Welcome to Intel's Conversations in the Cloud. I'm your host, Jake Smith. Join me as I speak with guests from across the world about the latest advancements in cloud and edge computing, data center technology, network infrastructure, security, artificial intelligence, and more. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you may be in the world. My name is Jake Smith, and welcome to another episode of Conversations in the Cloud. I am joined today by founder and CEO, Arjit Sangupta from Able.com. Welcome, Arjit. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You know, I love having founders on this podcast for a couple of reasons. First of all, you've taken all the risk. <laughs> And you've built something that the world is going to be proud of. So can you talk about your background, why you founded Able, and where you're taking the company? Absolutely. So I'm very much of a recovering nerd. Came to the U.S. to study artificial intelligence at Stanford in those days because I couldn't study AI at the bachelor's level in India. Ended up starting a first company called Beyond Core, which was one of the first augmented intelligence companies that was using AI to do BI, business intelligence. That was acquired by Salesforce to become Salesforce Science and Discovery. Ended up teaching a course on AI in market-facing functions at the Harvard Business School MBA program, essentially helping MBA students figure out how to extract value from AI. Wrote a book called AI is a Waste of Money. What you're probably seeing is almost a mea culpa. I spent the first 15 years after graduating building AI technologies. And after having done thousands of them, I realized it was not actually creating value. So that book, the course, they were my attempts to kind of explain to the world that AI is not magic and it will not create value unless you do it right. And then I started able to kind of fix all the mistakes I made, all the well-intentioned mistakes, but they were mistakes <laughs> nonetheless. Learning opportunities, I think we call those, right? Exactly right. Because AI has so much promise. But the problem is if you don't distinguish between technology and actual results delivered to the customer, actual impact you're having, then you're never going to win. And this is why AI winters happen is because people get very excited by the very interesting technology and they completely forget the human element. If the end user doesn't adopt it, it doesn't matter. And that's why ABLE, our tagline is, I am ABLE. The I is very important, in fact, more important than the AI. Wow, excellent. So, Adajit, tell me a little bit about your serverless first approach. Some people might call it controversial. Some people may not like it. Why did you take this approach as an architect and as somebody who is, as you said, taken on lots of projects in the industry, some successful, obviously, and then some maybe not so successful, but still pushing the science? So one of the scary things I saw as BeyondCore exploded was how much money, how much energy we were spending on training AI. And, you know, we went through that exponential growth and it's a good thing that we went through it. But there's some really interesting research out there that's talking about how the energy cost of training a model is exploding. It is doubling every three months or so. So essentially over a span of six years, it has gone in something like 300,000 times higher, you know, the most complex models that you can train. And that is just not sustainable. 
And at the same time, right around the time we were creating Able, this whole serverless revolution was becoming even more important. It had existed before that. And the premise of a serverless approach was you're not keeping servers around doing nothing. You're not spending money moving data back and forth from one data storage to another data storage. In fact, when we started training models in serverless approaches, we were finding that 99% of our spend was going into compute. And that means 99% of the effort being spent is actually productive. Whereas when you would do server-oriented, you know, the common thing would be somebody would bring up a server, put a bunch of data in it, and the data scientists would work on that project for six months. Guess what? Those servers never got shut down. Even though maybe over those six months, those servers were productively used for model training for one day spanning the six months, but the servers were on and scaled for model training for six months. So servers were so inefficient that I knew serverless first had to be the right approach. But the problem with serverless first is it is much harder. The DevOps is much harder. The development, the debugging is much harder. You often get into vendor lock-in because serverless on AWS is fundamentally different than serverless on Azure. And it took us several years, almost three years of really rethinking how do the model get trained? We saw these models were not designed to be trained serverless first. How do we train the models? How do we deploy the models and do it all on serverless first so that we are not wasting energy and by extension, we are not wasting customers money. The benefit though also happens that we are going from the beginning of raw data to a deployed model in a customer's environment in a matter of minutes because of the serverless first approach and nobody else can do that. You know, that's breakthrough. The idea of a serverless first approach is to go from months to minutes to implementation. You've done that. Talk a little bit about why you have really utilized benchmarking and what you've recently announced with Intel and why benchmarking is so important. So Intel has been an amazing partner through this process as we were trying to figure out how do you make the code really, really efficient, right? So one of the things with serverless first is you have much less resources. So every little bit of optimization really matters. And as we started partnering with Intel, a lot of the work Intel had done to optimize model training on the latest Intel chips really made a huge difference. And as Intel started looking at our results, they were like, you know, we need to benchmark this because what I love about Intel is it's a very science first approach to life. We don't want loosey-goosey stuff. We want to benchmark. Data-driven, I think is the term. Data-driven. Let's be facts-driven. Let's just not have opinion. If this is so good, if this is fundamentally this much better, we should be able to prove it. So we decided to benchmark two very interesting things. First is... Can we really deliver business impact in a month? It's a crazy claim in a world where 90% of AI projects are not delivering business value. That's according to MIT Sloan report that came out a little bit back. And I think BCG had collaborated with them. So first part is benchmarking that. Are customers really getting to value in 30 days? And the second part was benchmarking that effectiveness of serverless first versus server-oriented architecture. 
And Intel did something amazing where they are paying for 25 of these AI projects where we are taking customers from raw data to a deployed model in 30 days. Intel is paying for 25 of them and we are waiving our services fee for them so that at no cost to them, customers can try this as long as they are part of that free anonymous benchmark. And it's a way for all of us to do some good for the industry, because if this causes energy consumption to come down a little bit more, you know, people are concerned about the energy consumption and carbon footprint of crypto. The reason crypto is top of mind, because a small group of miners use the energy. In the case of AI, so many companies are using the energy that is not as visible. It's much more spread out. But the global warming impact of AI is definitely greater than the global warming effect of crypto, at the very least, looking forward, right? And we are trying to solve this at the very beginning of the problem cycle, rather than first letting the problem explode, fundamentally hurting the environment, and then try to fix it five years from now when, oh my God, the sky is falling down. Can we just look forward, see how exponential trends work? You can see the problem coming, right? You don't need to actually get hit by the truck. You can see the truck coming. Let's please get out of the way. And hopefully this benchmark thing will get the evidence in front of people so that they realize they're just doing the wrong thing right now. You know, it's interesting you say that because isn't that the whole point of AI? Exactly. Like for people who are obsessed about looking to the future and predicting the future, this doesn't take much prediction. Like the thing I tell people is the easiest things to predict are things related to demographics and these kind of growth trends, right? Because you can see them, you know where it's going to go, especially if it's exponential. It doesn't take much of an imagination to know three years from now, five years from now, you are going to be doing serverless first, not just on model training, but also on deployment. Like, why would you want to keep service up and running when the requests for predictions come in in batches, right? Sales use case, salespeople come in in the morning, they run a bunch of predictions. They're not running a bunch of predictions Sunday morning. Why are you keeping the service running Sunday morning? Right. So we are, as a society, going to go to serverless first. The question is, do you want to do the wrong thing first, hurt yourself and the economy and the environment and then fix it five years from now when you don't have a choice? Wow. Deep tracks. Uh, <laughs> well, Rajit, these are very important points. So how are you addressing factors like bias and ethics in AI, because I know it's important to you. It absolutely is. And one of the problems that is happening in the market right now is you can't eliminate bias. Let's just explain this. Like AI is too smart. If you think your data has bias, say, let's say gender bias, and you took the gender variable out, the AI will pick up something like what's your job title? Because school teachers are disproportionately female, construction workers are disproportionately male. AI is too smart. You can't remove bias that way. What we can do is define fairness. AI is very good at figuring out, once you give it a goal and you say, this is my goal, the AI can drive to that goal. So we are trying to change the market from instead of reactively thinking about bias, proactively defining what is fairness in my environment. So if I'm doing loan approvals, fairness might be my approval rate should be equal across genders, across races and stuff. That's your definition of fairness. Now let's just make sure the AI delivers to that. 
And the serverless first approach actually does allow that too, because to do it correctly, you want to have many, many predictive models that are being used under different circumstances, which is very hard to do on servers because it is too expensive to run 20, 30 models that are looking at different circumstances and adjusting accordingly. With serverless, it's very easy. And the last part of this is we explain the economic impact of that fairness definition. So if I define fairness this way, how much revenue will I lose? Actually, maybe I'll gain some revenue, right? But understanding the trade-off between fairness and your business objectives so that fairness is not in competition with business. Like this is the mistake we made with the world of COVID. When we first started talking about COVID, it became an either or. It was, hey, we need to think about the economy or we need to think about people dying. Guess what? You need to think about both and you need to be able to balance both. And when you only have one lever and think of one predictive model as one lever, if you just have one lever, you're going to fight over that lever. If you can have many, many switches and, hey, this is the model I'm going to use under this circumstance, this is the model I'm going to use under that circumstance, as COVID picks up, hey, what, I'm going to go to a more conservative thing. If COVID drops down, I'm going to go to a more aggressive setting. Once you are not fighting over one lever, it doesn't become us versus them. It doesn't become a fairness versus business. It becomes a fairness and business. And that's what we are trying to get people to. Well, I'm really thankful that you guys are taking this mission on and taking it seriously. And you've developed an Intel. We have a very strong relationship. I think that's going to continue. I don't, I don't see that not continuing. But this one is an important question that I know our listeners want to hear about. What about data security, privacy, and residency? Can you give us your thoughts there? Absolutely. Same pattern, interestingly enough, that all this ties back to serverless. When you do things with servers or you do things on your laptop, what you're doing is you're moving the data to the code, if you will, right? I have my code running on a server and I'm now going to move the data to the code. Every time you move data, every time you copy data, every time you give people access to data, you actually increase your risk of data breach. What serverless does, it brings the code to the data. The data never gets replicated. So imagine a customer who's using Able, they just give us uh, what's called a CloudFormation template permission in AWS or Azure from their AWS account. After that, the model training is actually happening on their private cloud account inside their VPC. The model deployment is happening inside their account on their VPC. We never get to see the data. We never get to see the model. In fact, all of the details of that model code is being saved inside their own cloud account. Why is this important? Because the data never got copied. The data never got accessed by one more human. And that is security by design. Now, this extends into interestingly data residency because if I have data in France and I have data in US and I want to train a model that spans both data, I can actually have that serverless instance in France learn what's going on with the data in France, the serverless instance in US learn what's going on in the US and just combine the metadata, never the data, to create a model or create an analysis that is spanning the data set in France and data set in the US without ever moving that out. 
And by the way, this approach hasn't just been used in this kind of a context. It has been used by one of the largest states in the U.S. where even the chief data officer of that state was not being able to get permission to access data of certain departments. I forget the exact one. It was some kind of a child welfare department that wouldn't give him access to the data. But with the serverless approach, the model training could happen in that agency's environment and the chief data officer could still get the analysis results. So what you're doing is you are designing security, data residency, privacy, by the way, can be built in. There's something called key anonymity where you do not reveal results of any individual. Like if you put in a query, you'll only get back an answer as long as that query applies to at least say 10 people. That would be 10 anonymity. That approach is built right into ABLE. We automatically, by default, enforce 25 anonymity so that using ABLE, you can never reveal information about an individual, right? But what you're noticing about this is we took that serverless approach and we said, wow, you know what? A lot of these constraints that people have lived with before suddenly don't apply. I don't have to move the data to the code. What does this mean for privacy? What does this mean for security? What does this mean for data residency? And all of a sudden you'll find in the serverless first world, many things that were just difficult in the server world becomes, oh my God, so much easier. Arijit, can you help our listeners understand where they can find out more information about ABLE? Well, easiest thing is just go to able.com. That's A-I-B-L-E.com and you'll get all the information there. And if you have to remember the name, just remember I am able and then just add that I to the middle of able and you get A-I-B-L-E and look forward to seeing you on that website. So now for my favorite part of the podcast to ask you about the future. So as a member of the Intel Disruptor Initiative Program, your organization has proven time and time again as one of Gartner's top magic quadrant for cloud and AI dev services, a visionary two years in a row. Where's the future of AI and dev services going? And how do we get out in front of that training power equation that you just discussed? Yeah, so we are rated number one for automated machine learning by Gartner ahead of all the industry majors, which is really fun for us. But here is the thing I think is most important is, will AI be done to you or will AI be done for you? And that is a bigger question than any transactional thing we can think of. If you think of the Gini index, the income inequality that we talk about, the difference between the AI haves and the AI have nots is going to be far greater than anything you've seen in income inequality if we go down the traditional path. Then what we are obsessively focused on is how do we get the end users a say in the AI that will affect their lives? So, for example, I talked about the sales use case and our predictive models get presented right inside Salesforce, for example. But a salesperson, an individual salesperson can come in and say, hey, this AI is just overwhelming me with too many needs to go after. I want to be more selective. And they can move one slider and their AI becomes more selective. Another person might say, hey, this AI is too conservative. I like to crank through a bunch of leads and I'll qualify it myself. And they can move to a more aggressive setting. Same company, same starting point, but the two end users end up having two very different experiences. 
This approach has to be applied to every place where we apply AI. It is not a question of knowing what data got used by the AI. That is not the real rights when we think about AI. The real rights we should be thinking about is can we as an end user make sure the AI is serving us, is working to our preferences, as opposed to the AI is serving some entity that we don't even understand what the objectives are. That's where we are going. And I think that's going to be what's going to help us win. Right now, Gartner, Forrester and others are excited by what they see as our ability to deliver value. But five years from now, 10 years from now, I hope you look back at Able and say, these guys are the ones who got the human element to AI right. They turned AI into something that was empowering for everyone, not just something that was you know, created by the few to affect the lives of the many. Outstanding. On behalf of Arjit, Sangupta, founder and CEO of Able. My name is Jake Smith, and this has been another episode of Conversations in the Cloud. Wherever you may be in the world, we wish you a good morning, good afternoon, and good night.